0: Welcome to the sixth episode of Three Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, and I'm joined today by my esteemed co-hosts, the Don of the G-Wagon, Nikita Beer, and the George Costanza Venture Capital, Zach Kukoff. (laughs) How
1: are we doing, guys? Doing all right. Only all right?
0: That's about it, yeah. Last week was much more dour, so I guess we've uh, everyone hanging out together was uh, put a little pep in, pep in Nikita's step. Um, how has the uh, how's the week been since I've seen you guys laugh? So I think we alluded to this last week, but uh, we we did all get dinner. We broke bread on Monday for the first time since we've been doing this. Um, how's the rest
1: of the week been, Zach? You're still in LA. I'm still in LA. Uh, I can't get rid of me. I, in fact, I'm trying to see Nikita a whole second time. I liked hanging out so much. Uh, we all broke bread together.
2: If you're lucky. I didn't know Zach's drink, though, was uh, gin and tonic. It kind of resonates with his old man uh, uh, persona.
1: I was going to say, you know who I learned that from? My grandparents turned me on to it <laughs> at, a, at a too young age to be drinking. It was the hottest drink of the 1950s. So that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, thank you to uh, Lydia and Ben Kukoff for turning me on to uh, the gin and tonic at the age of like 14 years old. Yeah, oh, that's good. That uh, Yeah, I'm sure there's nothing illegal uh, with that. or
0: uh, I don't think there's like, there's probably some statute of limitations that exist on your your grandparents feeding you alcohol at 14.
1: I will say the G&T is a, I think, chronically underrated drink. I actually think, all right, ready for this? A special martini, we all know, used to be the hot drink. I think the next hot drink, gin negroni that's from that's from i'm um, putting my foot in the ground isn't a gin negroni just a negroni well there's isn't there also a uh another kind of negroni i I think it's just a negroni i'm almost certain i gotta look this up now let's see another kind of negroni (laughs)
2: yeah i'm pretty sure a gin negroni is a negroni
1: there's a yeah but there's also a vodka negroni yeah i think when people say negronis they mean gin negronis but all right fine well then how about this i think the negroni is going to be the hot drink this year regardless of what the base is it's pretty hot already. Yeah, I, I'm accurate. I'm, it's called seeing the present clearly. Perhaps you've heard of that. Venture capitalists <laughs> do it all the time, Nikita.
2: Yes,
0: exactly. When Zach says he means uh, he means what's the what's the <laughs> the big nursing compound in Florida? That's where it's really starting to pick up. Oh, Boca Raton? No, 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 no. The city of? No, no, no. Uh, there's the big. Um, Uh, It's like the number one. uh, Oh, the villages. The villages. villages. Yeah,
1: the villages. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, Nikita, what did you think of hanging out with uh, VCs for uh, a night, two
2: nights? Uh, It feels like you're kind of getting indoctrinated into the culture. Uh, You know how every founder just dreams of being a VC after they have an exit or whatever. And uh, for me, I was like, I I was potentially thinking about that career path. But after going to a VC conference, I realized how fucking boring it is
0: <laughs> it's a lot of networking it's a lot of schmoozing for people like calling that work right it's professional networking i think uh,
2: it, it felt like mildly adversarial like everyone's trying to like be the better vc or they're like we're all fighting for this like for our set of uh deals and lps uh well especially with you right uh yeah why do you think we started we started a podcast
0: and like we exist on twitter just so we're not like the other vcs you know like that's the whole thing we're trying to stand out here so yeah everyone's kind of like everyone's friends but also everyone's willing to stab each other in the back like at a moment's notice if it if it benefits them so it's a uh, i think
1: it says more about logan's approach to vc logan's like everyone is friends and also everyone is willing to stab each other in the back not any any individual person who's talking just I, everyone i will
0: I, I will knife someone if the situation benefits me, and uh, yeah, our
2: returns. I uh, yeah, you should sleep with one eye open, Zach Kukoff.
1: Yeah, that's clearly I now know it's coming
2: to me. That's good to know. But what what surprised me was like everyone had like a, a, a literally everyone had a five five hundred million dollar fund, and it just showed how much liquidity is in the market right now. Uh, and I, yeah, it, it, these are people that I've never heard of. They've you know they have no you know uh, pedigree or uh, professional reputation. Uh, It just seems like like there's just too much money competing for too too few deals right now. I mean, one of the things is that's the case right now, right? But I I spent a bit of time with a
0: bunch of uh, LPs over the last week, and um, there's definitely a liquidity crunch that's that's happening, right? Like you hear a bunch of LPs feel like everyone's back in market, raising bigger and bigger funds, right? Uh, Zach, I know you can't comment, but General Catalyst raised a fund recently insight had a $20 billion fund um, that that they announced. And um, there's probably four or five more kind of 234 billion dollar funds that I know are being raised right now. And so I think the LPs are kind of like, what the fuck?
1: Well, it's not hugely surprising, right? Like I can, I mean, our, our fund closure is public, we can, we can talk about the fact that it happened. But ultimately, like, because every fund has to get really big, really fast, or has to stay super disciplined, all of the funds who kind of sort of grew a little bit now are like frantically trying to grow uh, aggressively. Otherwise, you know, to be, which is going to say crazy sound out loud, but like to be merely a 500 million or $700 million fund is sort of a no man's land right now.
0: Well, you say that, I mean, that's what we are. And I think you sort of need to purposefully do that, right? Like you, you kind of need to pick. It can't be on the path to, a step along the way.
1: Right. Right. Exactly.
0: We're we're staying that way purposefully. And we've sort of been that way for a long time. Right. And so we're not aspiring to be a four or five billion dollar fund. I think the folks that have gone from 100 to 300 to 500 to 700 or whatever, I think if if your path is just trying to grow and continue to go up, I really do think there's going to be a cleaving off there um, versus, you know, there are groups that have decided to stay. I mean, benchmark famously. Right. And we'll We'll get to talking a little bit more about them, but staying smaller intentionally. So,
1: yeah, I think that's right. Like, t- my point is less about the enduring managers, more about the emerging managers, yeah, right? If you're on your way to a $5 billion and 500 million to stop, that's the death zone. If you're disciplined and you've always been five hundred million, right, that's a very different situation. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it was funny Nikita's observation that like that there were a lot. There's a lot of like two, three, four. This was before we uh, we got on the podcast, but a lot of tier two, three, four BCs and. I feel like every VC thinks that they're, uh, you know, Sequoia's 1A or something. And then everyone thinks that they're 1B or like tier two at worst, right? Like every VC is like, yeah, you know, I mean, we're we're like 1B. Sequoia, sure, we'll give them their credit. But like, we're just right that next tick below. And I think there's like 70 funds telling themselves that they're fund, they're number 1B in the order. But do, you,
1: do you think these funds actually believe that? Like, I, I don't know if, if people are actually like from a truth serum, they'd be like, yeah, we're like number two to Sequoia. Or is that like a, a marketing thing they're doing?
2: I, they they were defending their egos at at the the party I was at where they were like saying yeah we did we did this deal from twenty in twenty thirteen that returned hundred x but they kept referring to that deal ten years ago that they did. That's my favorite
0: group as a board member is just like try to bring everything back like the 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 old board member that like had one big win in you know whatever two thousand nine or something they like sold double click and they're like trying to vector the conversation back to the one big win they had. Zach, your question I think everyone thinks that they're on the ascension, right? If they don't think they're firmly 1B, they think that they're like, you know, that their star is on the rise, right? And that they're very close to being that. I don't think anyone's like, yeah, you know, we're tier three, but this is probably going to be our place for the next bit, right? Because the ground's moving underneath everyone. And so if you think, like, if you don't think you're ascending, then you're definitely falling in a very meaningful way.
1: I think that's probably right. I also would say, by the way, Nikita, to your point, like the weird structure of venture is such that you can basically be set for life. If you're a small fund and you happen to do one great deal, right? If you're like a $300 million fund and you're the early investor in a $10 billion outcome and you own 20% of it, right? That is like a life changing outcome for three to four partners. Um, and so, but then if you only, because you only need to do one of those to really be successful, you end up with all these folks who have only done one of those and and think forever they're like the greatest investor in the world because they had one phenomenal outcome.
0: Well, and I think at the end of the day, like being rich is different than like feeling important. Right. And so there's a lot of people at these conferences that are worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars or whatever it is. Right. But no one gives a shit because it happened, you know, eight years ago or, you know, they've never had a big win, but they've just been at a big fund and hung around for a while. And so they're like walking around and puffing their chest out and they grew up under the world in which the VCs had all the power, right? And they're used to Nikita groveling to them to get the fund raised. And now the dynamic has totally shifted. And so I think all these people just feel, they're like, five years ago, I was so important. And now like no one gives a shit that I invested in, you know, whatever exact target 10 years ago or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, five years ago, all I had to do was do like, the most obvious deals in the world and that made me unfathomably wealthy and today I can't do that and people are no longer calling me a genius. Is it me or is it a macro? Was it, am I good or was the macro environment really good? Yeah.
0: Impossible to answer. Yeah, it turns out, it turns out like if multiples appreciate by 5x like and you get your pick of SaaS companies, it might not be like you that's actually the generational faster. <laughs> that's,
1: right. that's right. That's right. Might
0: be a little index <laughs> to the circumstances of the time. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I saved this story. We were at, uh, we were at dinner on Monday night and I, I wanted to hold off on, uh, on this cause it was a, a cool experience. And so I told these guys, I wasn't going to tell the story for them, uh, twice and that I would actually do it on the pod. But, um, before we, before we hung on Monday night, I actually, uh, got to go to SNL for the first time. Uh, and this is something I've been sitting on. Like I had this friend who had a friend and he said, if ever I wanted to go to SNL, like, let me know. And I was like, ever? And he goes, yeah, ever, if you want to. And so I've been sitting on this for like a year. And I saw whatever a month ago, it came out, John Mulaney was hosting. And Zach, I know you're a big
1: John Mulaney fan as well. Dickie, I don't know uh, your, your take on it, but what were you shaking your head? I, I would not call myself. I, I've seen Mulaney in person once and actually tickets courtesy of Logan. So thank you for that. But that was like the only time ever, and I don't like Mulaney's choir boy shtick. The only time I enjoyed Mulaney was post-rehab.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, It must be the Catholicism. Like, uh, there's enough Jewish comedians (laughs) for you to focus on that. The Catholic comedians, yeah, that's sort of... the
1: Jewish comedians don't do the choir boy act. I think it's a whole other, that's like a whole other neurosis that I don't subscribe to.
0: It is a real irony that, like, his whole shtick was Catholic, you know, Georgetown dude, and, like, he had to, you know, go to rehab for three months for cocaine Use, right? That is like kind of an irony. But yeah, no, he he it, it's worth people going back and watching his SNL open. But I went to the dress rehearsal and yeah, he did a whole bunch of thing about like, you know, his friends calling in uh to his uh into his intervention, right? And going to rehab for a while and having to delete all his drug dealers' phones and all that. Pretty funny bit. But uh so I'm sitting there and you know, this is a it felt like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And so I I'm excited to see John Mulaney, LC Did. LCD sound systems also playing who I like. Um, and I have two seats open for me right before it starts. And then um, and Chris Rock walks in with his daughter and sits down right next to me. And so now I'm like, you know, center stage SNL, uh, Chris Rock sitting next to me trying to play it cool. And uh, so it ended up being a super cool show. I think the rules were a little different of what I got versus what uh, versus what Chris Rock had to do. Me, they were like, you show up at 746, you're out, right? Chris Rock rolled in whatever an hour later for me it was like no cell phone chris rock was like texting away the entire show but it was cool they had uh paul rodd steve martin conan o'brien tina fey candace bergen because it was like uh the five timer thing so the whole thing was like I a super know. interesting, cool, uh, sort of only in New York experience. So while I love being in L.A. in the warm weather this past week, I, there are some benefits to, to staying in New did
1: York. You, did you love being in L.A. when you took the first flight you could the second the conference programming was over to get back?
0: You know, I... I the kids
1: and I are going to have a whole fun weekend together. Logan was like, I will be on the first red eye back to New York. Thank <laughs> you very much.
0: I did walk into a party, survey the scene, walk out and catch a red eye. So I... <laughs> I, I, I
2: guess, joined. I enjoyed my time. Uh, yeah, enjoyed it, Jason. Yeah, I would say that this this week was more representative, probably of San Francisco than LA because it was a VC conference. I think that's right. Yeah, it, that's a. It's interesting that like
0: you know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it's clear these destination events that like everyone just flies in for like boondoggle networking, everyone at once, right? I think that's going to be a rotating thing that. You know, it was, it was uh, Art Basil once upon a time, and now it's it was upfront this month, and I'm sure there's going to be another, you know, Miami Tech Week's coming up, right? And so I'm sure that's going to be the same thing that, you know, everyone just drops into a city, takes over. It's the worst East Denver. It's the worst week for everyone on Tinder and Bubble in, in those cities that all these bros come <laughs> in and
1: start swiping away. I know. I can't imagine. To, uh, to be a USC sorority girl this week in LA must have been a hellish experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of swiping to get to
0: the, yeah, to get to the Ugh. Um, Well, good. So uh, I think first topic we wanted to cover this week was uh, the first episode of Super Pumped, the battle for Uber. So uh, for people that don't know, this is a Showtime show based on the 2019 book by Mike Isaac by the same name. Um, The show was created by Brian Koppelman, who is the creator of Billions and Rounders. Uh, And I, I looked through his Wikipedia, seemingly didn't do anything else between the years like 1998 to 2016. It seems like he took those years off uh and just did rounders and then billions. But how is that different from VCs? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's basically a VC. He did two good deals and then it didn't work for ten years. Yeah. So uh the show focuses on the um the rise and the fall of former uh Uber CEO Travis Kalinick, who's played by uh Joseph Gordon Levitt. Um Uma Thurman plays Ariana Huffington, she hasn't made an appearance yet. Uh it's narrated by Quentin Tarantino. Um the, sh- the series has, has actually already been renewed for another season in which they're going to go into, uh, into Facebook. So um, they're, it sounds like they're going to keep doing these little like uh, mini series type things focused on some plot in the tech ecosystem. So I guess just as a backdrop before we dive in, I, I did my, just a quick flag disclosure, blah, blah, blah. Uh, my partner, Elliot, uh, who recruited me into Redpoint, his sister's Austin Gite, who uh, is a character on the show. She's featured prominently in episode one. And so I'm not totally unconflicted in my, you know, uh, uh, my perspectives on this.
2: But um, yeah, I'd be interested. Uh, Nikita, what'd you think? Uh, I thought it was extremely cringy to watch. Uh, Like, I I think they were trying to go for the same vibe as the social network, but uh, it just came off so awkward. Um, But at, at the same time, I was really trying to separate whether, uh, like it was actually the show or that tech culture in 2010 was that cringy? Um, cause I mean, in 2010, it was like the post Facebook, like frat era of tech. Uh, and you know, you, people were wearing collared shirts and, uh, you know, drinking, they had a beer keg in the office. Uh, and it, I, I think it's, it's, like most of us, like don't really remember that because it was just we don't we kind of repress it actually that that that's how an office was run back then. Um, so yeah, I but it, I mean it's still interesting to watch seeing Hollywood's portrayal of of all this, uh,
1: and I mean it it, it it the story definitely needed to be told. I, I couldn't stand it. I mean I I felt it was. Not, I don't think it was endemic to the time. I think the show was just not a good show. I, I, did you guys read the book? I didn't read the book. No. I can't speak to the book, but I, I thought the show was like cringy to your point, Nikita. I, my All of my ex Uber friends said, by the way, didn't even feel accurate. Like the actual story is so much juicier, at least from the first episode that we were shown. Like the actual story is so much more interesting than what they ended up focusing on. Like th- here's a good example of this, right? They talked about the safe rides fee. And they called it a Michael Eisner moment. Have any of you ever heard anyone in tech say something as a Michael Eisner moment? Like any year, 2010 or today.
0: No, yeah. Michael Eisner. No, of course I, not. I don't think people have been taking inspiration from Michael Eisner, right?
1: <laughs> right. Uh. The old, like, like I mean, seriously, like I, I was just so off the mark in both the big ways and the small ways that I, uh, I, I mean, you know, I, there was the Twitter thread going around from an ex-Uber employee who said that. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt had pinged him to hear about what it was like to work for TK. And apparently uh, he like made a point of not talking to Travis himself when he did the actual prep for the show. So the whole thing to me struck me as like kind of willfully a little bit um, uh, telling a story perhaps that was not necessarily a one-to-one mirror of reality.
2: What, what I thought was kind of like missing, and I, I, they always do this for any of these like tech stories is they, they don't actually tell the origin story. And I I think that was probably the more interesting part of Uber of like, uh, Travis didn't really take the company that seriously at the beginning because Ryan Graves was running it. It was more of like a side project. And I I think how it eventually became like, uh, a a core part of his life. And it just became his magnum opus. I think that would have been more interesting to tell, but they just kind of glazed over that and acted like he had conviction on day one that this, this company would be the big one. Garrett Camp did
0: take an L in the first like two minutes of uh (laughs) that was just like a brutal opening for him, just like, yeah, I and then I shoved you to the side, Dork. It was like basically they put (laughs) you into a proverbial
1: locker and like shut the door. My new drinking game is every time they have him say, are you sure, TK? And like the world's kind of dopeest voice, just take a shot and you'll be completely blacked out within five minutes.
0: Zach, I'm impressed. You you went with TK as well. It's like you're you're basically on the show at this point. Now, you know, I actually enjoyed it. Um it be, to some extent I've lived like this period in time. And so I found it interesting. But, you know, I think it had the 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 thing that they struggled with, which I don't know exactly how the social network pushed through and didn't have this problem in my mind. But. They're both trying to stay true to the fact that these are real uh, people, right, and capture some of their essence, but also make them compelling characters. And so I I thought it was interesting, like, the Travis as a character was far less interesting in my mind than Travis as the actual person, right? Normally, these things, you sensationalize the character on television, and it's actually far more boring than what you get in real life. And here, it was actually the the opposite. Joseph Gordon-Levick felt like he was, I don't know, he felt like he was trying way too hard. Like, Kalanick had this this kind of intimidating energy, but also this charisma. And like the whole bro thing for Travis, it was kind of a shtick. At the end of the day, he was kind of a nerd that cared about like the engineering culture. And he put on this like bravado over it all. And I, I just think he was a much more interesting like complicated person and Josh Gordon-Levitt like the guy that was in 500 days of summer like just couldn't really convey that and so I sort of struggled yeah. like just watching him I actually think someone had this observation on on Twitter but Kyle Chandler the guy coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights who played girly here um I think would have actually been a better Travis Kalanick like I I think he could have captured that essence of like intimidation but charisma but you know Like, could be a little dorky, but also, like, a leader, right? And just Gordon-Levitt just doesn't really have that for me.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. There was a total miscast. I I, Again, like, it's not shocking when he didn't take the effort to actually go out and talk to the character he's playing, who's very much alive, right? And presumably would have spoken to him. Like, to me, that's just it's emblematic of, like, the whole approach to the show, which is, it's not at least the social network for all of its flaws was a good movie. Like, it's a really good movie, as a matter of fact. I was robbed for Best Picture. Like, that was a, a fun, great narrative, true or not. Probably not. At least it works as art. This, to me, is it fails on two levels. It's It doesn't feel like it's true. And also, I don't think it works as a piece of art either.
0: What do you think the difference is that Social Network did? Like, do you think they they just casted it better? Because this certainly has elements in the plot. Now, they went into more of the origin story and all of that. Um, but what what do you think,
2: like, this is missing that Social Network got right? I, well, I mean, Social Network was directed by David Fincher. I mean, one of the greatest directors of all time. Uh, cinematography was beautiful. Uh, the, the score was amazing. Like, the, the way that it's... Written, it from- written
1: by Aaron Sorkin, right? My, my absolute favorite screenwriter, because I'm trash, but yeah. by Aaron Sorkin, who's incredible.
2: Yeah, I mean, the dialogue was was great. Um, the, the characters were all had very strong identities that were like... Like, most of them were pretty likable. Uh, and I, I think seeing it start from the dorm room level made it feel like this, you know, rags to riches story. Uh, so I, I mean, and everyone was flawed and they were flawed in a way that you could understand where they came from. Uh, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I I think it was really robbed of best picture and it was, uh, just an amazing film. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, it felt like they were trying to chase after that vibe with this, uh, show. And they just totally missed the mark.
1: I almost would rather have seen them not take it seriously. Like, I felt like the social network, because it was so well written and it was so well directed, Nikita, to your point, the score was so great and it was so well acted, Logan, to your point, right? Like, it, it works as a serious, self serious piece. Although there are still some lines, uh, the, you know, sorry, my prod is at the cleaners. There's still some lines that are sort of ridiculous on their own merit, but like, this one it, it because the dialogue was off and all the small things they got wrong and the thing didn't ring true, I almost would rather have them seen them like go really campy and kind of play it up really big and and be kind of winking and knowing they're they're ridiculous rather than try to like straddle this line of not being hyper accurate or at least not feeling accurate in impressionistic sense, but also not being funny enough to to be a fun hate watch either. Do you think we're, like, too close to the circumstances
0: around this, both from a time period as well as, like, our careers and understanding that, like, the little offness of the power dynamic with VCs and, you know, all that stuff is actually bothering us more? Like, it's kind of weird for me to internalize seeing Gurley, who, you know, I, I know, know of a little bit, and seeing him as, like, this, you know, handsome, smooth, talking Uh, Kyle Chandler character with his two dorky associates like Kohler and Fenton like that was actually high comedy that Gurley so Gurley is actually friends with Koppelman which is funny but Gurley gets played by this like handsome handsome smooth character and then Kohler and Fenton take these like these dorky L's with the with the characters that they got but I don't know how much is like it's bothering me that I have more of an appreciation of the essence of these characters than um than the social network, right? Obviously I see Zuck, but I don't have an opinion about Zuckerberg like in the nuances in the early days, or I see the Winklevoss brothers, but like, I don't really have an opinion stylistically about how they operate versus like Kyle Chandler throwing on all these like hokey Texas mannerisms about, and like, oh, I'm gonna finish your sentence and you know, all of that stuff. It just, I don't know, it kind of made me uncomfortable with how dorky it
2: was. I I think uh, Hollywood just wants to portray tech in a certain way. That they know what their audience wants to hear. They want it to see the CEO as the adversary, the VC as this uh, Texan oil man who uh, like doesn't look at numbers and just makes uh, shoots from the the hip. So I, yeah, I think he's been portrayed pretty unfairly over the years. I mean, he's had inexcusable workplace problems, but to to be fair, like Uber has probably saved like thousands of lives from drunk driving, and I, I think uh when when these hollywood writers and reporters cover it they, they i don't think we should like overlook the mistakes but i i think the fact like preserving human life as a company is a big deal and it deserves like more recognition than what pundits typically give them. um
0: mentioned the convenience on the worker side the convenience on like our ability to get around like you know drunk driving certainly part of it and i think they made a mistake of of part of what they did super well Uber in the early days was just kind of power ahead and take over cities and and have their users as evangelists behind what they were doing, right? And I think they missed the mark on not also doing that from a PR standpoint. They used it from a like government pushback standpoint, but the number of stories that they could have told about, you know, not driving drunk or whatever, and the number of studies that they could have done. Lyft ultimately did some of these studies of like lives saved from drunk driving and all that. But like, it was so patently obvious to me, the benefit of of Uber, And Travis really let that narrative get get away from them, which I think was a mistake. And there's kind of this hostility of the media that I think really started in that period of time. Right. In the tech ecosystem. And I think if he had been a little bit more proactive and collaborative about this, like they could have owned that narrative in a better way.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, mean, I think it was without saying, by the way, we didn't even talk about some of the biggest stuff, saving human lives, incredible, but also the fact that taxis just routinely wouldn't pick up people of color and that yeah. was a totally normalized thing for years and years, right? The idea that mostly taxi drivers were in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to the medallions. Yeah, the taxi commission here is not the good guys in all of these shows. But I think Uber, if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure they did have partnerships with Mothers Against Drunk Drivers and and all the sort of usual suspects you'd suspect. I think Travis, culturally, right? Like TK culturally was not the New York Times cocktail party stylistic character, and and that's by the way most people in tech, right? Most great founders are not the like New York Times cocktail party attendee, and that's that's fine. But uh, it, you know, the challenge is then you get the sort of assorted PR problems that not fitting into that crowd socially creates for you.
2: I, yeah, I think it's the 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 it's the the pattern of like. It's not what you do, it's how you say it. And yes. uh because of his his sort of, you know, personality and identity, it, it didn't matter how many lives he saved. It was it was more just he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And you know the the
0: Taxi cab locally was much more uh, in bed with uh, media and all of that stuff. Right. And so, and so the narratives that that were being spun were going to be much more rooted in the local companies and all of that rather than the the social good that was actually happening. But yeah, it's interesting to see all this stuff portrayed. It's disappointing that we don't have more of like a three dimensional character. I wonder if there's like constraints given to the time, but it felt like it felt like they kind of cut. Took shortcuts on the character development with regard to, I mean, all of all of the characters we saw on screen. It felt like they they just kind of force fed us that this person's bad, this person's, you know, how many references did they make to like we don't at Benchmark Capital we don't shoot our founders, we leave that to Sequoia. Which one? Oh my God, Benchmark
1: Capital. By the way, was the Cap- funniest Benchmark- part of that. Like-
0: That sounds so awkward, right? Uh, Clearly, no one like listened to any of this. Uh, I I was talking to a friend at Benchmark, and he's like, "I've never heard it called Benchmark Capital, right?" (laughs) And so it's just like, like, come on, these little things that. uh, And so I think they just tried to set up a little too much of like the foreshadowing that oh, Bill is in his camp, and now they're using like filling each other's sentences or whatever, and like setting up for the. The, you know, thing at the end when everyone knows the story, you don't need to bang us over the head with what's going to happen.
1: By the way, I will say, as much as we're all close to this and certainly not unbiased observers here, like the Rotten Tomatoes score is like 50%, right? So this is not necessarily being widely recognized as some beloved piece of cinema outside of the tax scene.
0: Well, uh, I guess... Referenced in the show, uh, there was a line about Travis uh Kalanick th- that Travis Kalanick conveyed to his brother uh about Randy Zuckerberg getting rich uh from uh Mark Zuckerberg. Now, I actually didn't know Randy Zuckerberg was a person uh until that line happened. And then it just so happened she popped up in my life twice this week. So uh for people that don't know, uh Randy Zuckerberg is Mark's older sister. Um it seems like she's become a something of an evangelist for web. Three and she's making these short form videos to raise awareness for crypto and NFT and blockchain or the things like that, I guess. Earlier this week, she posted a video that was set to Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it. And it was called, uh, we're all going to make it. Um, so Justin, I don't know if you can cue this up for us and so we can give at least a little bit of a snippet for people to hear. Uh, No, we'll we'll link the full thing in the uh, in the show notes uh, for other people to to uh, watch the entirety. I think I've watched it eight times now um, or so. But, uh, Zach, what what any thoughts on Randy Zuckerberg's uh, presentation
1: of Web3 here? I I couldn't believe she made a video about the future and the entire thing looked like it came out of 1985. Like (laughs) that was a little bit surprising to see. I don't know. I, I I just feel like it was a strange, uh, I, I just felt like it was a strange video to put out. Like, did any of you guys remember the first round video, uh, capital holiday videos they sure. used to do? Yeah. So I was in one of those a long time ago, and that felt like the good version of this, right? Knowing sort of tongue in cheek and on the joke, Listen, I, I have nothing against anybody involved in the video, but it did have, like, big theater kid energy to me in a way that was, like, sort of incongruous to everyone I know in crypto, none of whom have theater kid energy.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it just marked the top for crypto. I think that <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm selling everything today. <laughs> I,
0: I actually heard a story, speaking of top of crypto, of, like, a secondary round going down at multiple billions uh, with all of the money being taken out. and uh, And it's called a seed round. And so that was like, I think it was a couple of days before uh, this video was posted. So I think it's fair to not uh, mark the top of crypto with with Randy Zuckerberg. Um, yeah, no, I mean, Mark, like literally created a platform that people conspired to overthrow the government, and, and somehow I felt like this was was actually worse in some ways. Like, I, I, Zach, you said I don't have any problem with people that made the video. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could agree there. I mean, I, I did get whatever three minutes times eight times watching twenty four minutes of enjoyment out of it. So I can't say I'm totally against it, but. It was the production quality was actually quite well done. And I, Lord knows what this actually cost to make. But um, yeah, no, I, I I don't know if I if I would chill for this one.
1: I will say I've gotten more enjoyment out of watching the video lately than I have out of using Facebook. So in the Zuckerberg power ranking, Randy has outstripped Mark in my world.
2: My favorite comment on that video, though, was it was like a, a guy that was based in Ukraine said, I'm in a bunker and this made my day worse. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that it got like three thousand likes. Like, ratioed the video. <laughs> that,
0: <laughs> that is good stuff right there. So, I made a list of all the uh, all the Zuckerberg family videos here, and I, I would love to get your guys' best and worst uh, from an enjoyment standpoint. What you what you uh, like the most? So, there was the Randy Zuckerberg, "We're All Going to Make It" video. Um, there was the Mark Zuckerberg smoking ribs. Uh, the the Meta announcement video. There was a wakeboarding video where he uh, was flying with the American flag on the 4th of July. And then there was the the super sweaty All Things D conference where he basically, you know, looked like he was going to collapse on stage because he was
1: uh, pouring sweat so much. Zach, favorite video and least favorite video of the Zuckerberg family here? I mean, it's it's this is a real tough one. I think this is the hardest power ranking we've ever done in all six episodes of the pod so far. But It's close, but I think the number one has to be Mark Zuckerberg smoking ribs. I mean, that is like an iconic all-time video that I will spend my whole life. I I will never make content as good as that, no matter how hard I try. I got to say least favorite video, probably the 2010 All Things D, because I could very much imagine myself being uncomfortably sweaty at a conference. That feels a little too empathetic to me. You seem like a sweaty guy. I don't know that I'm a sweaty guy, but I feel like in that scenario I could be a sweaty guy. You, you, know give, what I mean? off, I, you give off sweaty guy energy. No, I agree. I agree. Wow. Nahida. Wow, a little a little a little harsh on the pod this week.
0: <laughs> Nikita, <Nahida, laughs> you're as a former Facebook employee, this was your grandmaster one once upon a time here. Uh what was your uh what was your
2: number one video and what was your least favorite from the Zuckerberg clan? I mean, uh he's fully embraced the smoking ribs, uh, you know the video uh, of sweet baby rays i mean he has it in the background of all his uh, all hands videos every week um but uh i have to say that the wakeboarding video dropping that on the fourth of july was uh was a power move and it i when it when it actually was released it was like it actually resonated with a lot of people
0: <laughs> it was mark trying to uh Interview at Founders Fund, uh, which was actually, uh, that, was, that was a big hit. Uh, Mark was really embracing the American flag and flying. It was actually in Tahoe. I had a buddy that sent me a uh, video before Mark had posted it. And he sent me a video and he goes, I think this is Mark Zuckerberg trying to wakeboard with an American flag. And I was like, That seems very weirdly specific, but uh, yeah, no, I agree that that was also my favorite, uh, my favorite video. Um, The the Smoking Ribs one, I actually I'm going to rank it last on my list, if only because now he's now he's in on the joke, right? Like, I want the ones that he's not quite in on the joke all the way. And he's embraced that one a little too much for my liking. So originally I was very high on it, but it's fallen off since then.
1: See, I I believe in death of the author. I'm not concerned with what Zuckerberg thinks is the best of these jokes. To me, like the moment of seeing him smoking those ribs forever is so powerful that he can put as many Sweet Baby Ray's uh, sauce packets as he wants on his bookshelf. I'm still going to be a big fan of that video forever.
0: Hey, um, by the way, one thing, uh, it, it, the most awkward part of the podcast here is uh, our request to like and subscribe and tell your friends if you're enjoying it. So I uh, here's me shilling once again for our
2: own podcast. Shameless.
0: So uh, one other topic I, I actually found really interesting this week was uh, DBT Labs, which is a data orchestration company. It's kind of indexed to the rise in data manipulation, indexed to Snowflake and Databricks and all these, re- Amazon Redshift and Google BigQuery and all of that. Um, they, they were set to raise a big round at $6.2 billion was the valuation they originally had, originally targeted. And uh, they actually proactively lowered the round to uh, $4.2 billion. And not only that, but they actually came out and admitted that and said as much. Right. And I knew um, there, was, there were a bunch of reporters sniffing around that knew that they originally had it at six and lowered it at four. And so I actually thought it was fascinating. DBT kind of in a masterclass of like PR management actually owned the story from the start and said like, yes, here's why we cut it. And so what Tristan Handy, the CEO, said was um, the investors were ready. It's that we have another set of stakeholders that we care about, the employees. Um, He said, the last thing that we want is for our employees or the 300 people that we're set to hire over the coming year to feel like we're not giving them the full opportunity to participate in the upside. Um, So I thought that was actually super interesting. Both DBT handled the PR really well instead of, you know, the information or someone running a story that, hey, this valuation got slashed, they actually owned it and said, hey, this is what happened. And then they actually took the narrative of it and said, and here's why we did it for our employees, right? And so I think that's an interesting kind of PR move that that we're seeing more and more. And it sounds self-serving when I say this as a VC, that's like, hey, lower valuation can sometimes be better in recruiting companies. But it you are getting more sophisticated engineers and more sophisticated executives that are asking about The 409 a price, which is going to be anchored off of these private round valuations. Right. And so I think this was actually really smart, not not in a VC centric way, but for Tristan to proactively recognize that the public markets are down 50 percent and that that even though he could have gone higher
1: in valuation,
0: setting the bar a little bit lower is going to be enticing to
1: employees. Yeah, I think a lot of the best CEOs are increasingly realizing that overly aggressive valuations, particularly when there's not a lot of traction to go on, uh, and they have, like so many of these open source projects, and this is not about uh, DBT specifically, but so many of these open source projects are raising so far ahead of their monetization skis that I actually think a lot of the great CEOs and them are realizing it's it's to it's to no one's benefit to do that. Right? Maybe actually only to a VC's benefit. To pump up these valuations aggressively because it means you can win the deal more easily and you can deploy more capital into these companies. But if you are the, you know, if you're the CEO of a company and choosing between a billion or two billion valuation on maybe a million dollars in revenue of an open source project, I think you're making your life a lot harder. I think a lot of they are them are listening, they're making their lives a lot harder to raise that higher valuation.
2: But I mean, uh for at least his justification, he's saying uh he can give out, you know, equity awards that won't uh that, that won't go down when when it ipos i mean it still would probably be better to give uh these grants to executive hires that are, have high headline numbers like instead of giving 10 10 million over four years they offer 15. i saw i i, I, don't, I, I don't see how it actually helps with recruiting uh i mean certainly they might quit if the, it drops a lot but they'll they'll still be essentially in the money uh, compared to other offers?
0: Well, two things. One, the strike price on the options, right, is, is the first. And so that gets set lower. But then two, I do think there's a sophistication that exists with executives. In particular, you've made this point in the past that are coming from the public markets and they're saying like, hey, that number is made up, right? And just because one VC said that at, at a moment in time said that that is what this is worth. And maybe maybe that was below market. Maybe it was market. Maybe it was above where the rest of the market would have come in they're saying hey you know i can't figure out what this is is worth and so i just can internalize how how big of a number the uh, billions are in the in, in the business and i can figure out how much revenue the company has and i can do that math of hey this is 100x or 200x or 500x and my company in the public markets is trading at you know it used to be at 30 40 50 times revenue and now it's down to, you know, 15, 20. And so I think it's more that uh, element of it. And so you're right. You could just say, hey, I'm giving a $15 million package instead of 10. But I do think there's some other, you know, sophistication that that play in the more polished executives or engineers.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Nikita. If you're, if you're certain, but if you're, you know, hiring the director who's now first time VP, you're probably right. The headline number is the thing people are optimizing for in that case.
2: Yeah. But uh, the, yeah, the four nine valuation really fucks up a lot of things uh, for for all these companies, because I mean, if there is if there is a uh, down round or if the they, they're struggling to raise capital, uh, a lot of these employees aren't going to fork over money to pay for those options. Yeah,
0: totally. And then that leads to in, like perverse incentives, and then you know whatever. Like the the employees aren't actually bought into everything, and so. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, conundrum to get in. So I imagine we'll see more and more of this. I actually think it's smart to potentially advertise where interest was from a valuation standpoint. I'll tell you, VCs aren't inherently the ones that are capping price of what people can go to uh, from a valuation standpoint. It's it's more and more founders saying, hey, this feels like a fair place uh, where there's still a ton of upside that exists for our employees. We still want our investors to, you know, if we execute, do well, right? And I think that's a, it's a healthier dynamic than what it's been at the pa- in the past uh, six months ago, maybe, where people were just trying to raise at the highest absolute valuation that they could. Okay, another topic uh, of the week was uh, BitConnect founder uh, Satish Kabanki was just indicted by a U.S. grand jury on charges that he orchestrated a global Ponzi scheme that raised $2.4 billion from investors in a fraudulent cryptocurrency investment platform, the Justice Department said. Uh, He was charged in San Diego with misleading investors about BitConnect's purported proprietary technology, which falsely promised returns based on phony volatility software that tracked cryptocurrency
2: exchange markets. Uh, Nikita, your thoughts on this? I feel like the SEC is just taking a dart and just throwing it at the entire crypto industry, and just whichever wherever it lands, they're they're auditing and investigating that company. Because right now, effectively, everything happening in crypto is illegal. Because when you're when you're issuing uh, this, either NFTs or stocks or whatever, uh, these buyers are expecting a return, and it it, it constitutes a security. Uh, and legally, you, every buyer must be an accredited investor. So virtually, all, like everything happening in uh, in crypto, are these is illegal securities? Uh, and it's funny how the SEC framed this as a Ponzi scheme. M- my impression was everything in crypto is a Ponzi. Scheme. I mean, I, I, uh, so. Uh, but I, I've you know I've I've talked to quite a few lawyers in this space over the last few weeks and. Uh, it, it seems like the the, per, the perception right now is that there's going to be a big crackdown on all, all these uh, companies. M- maybe what Satish was doing was maybe more egregious, but uh, I, I think uh, it's it's just a matter of time before the government catches up or changes the laws on uh, needing to be an accredited investor to invest in these uh, these non-public securities.
0: Yeah, I mean, it feels like the line between what, what constitutes fraud and what constitutes a, uh, a business is increasingly narrow in the world of, uh,
2: of crypto and NFTs these days. Yeah, I mean, I, realistically, I, I don't see how the SEC goes after all these types of cases, because it just seems like we have, you know, millions of people working on these sorts of uh, this, this technology and uh, and the public wants it. Uh, certainly a lot of people are losing money through, through scams, but, uh, I, I just don't, I, I don't, know how, how this is going to play out. Nikita pro fraud, pro wash, tra- wash trades here. He's saying
0: <laughs> they can't catch you everyone. Just keep running and you'll get away. Where do you think all the G wagons
1: are coming from? Follow it all the way back. People Yeah, pump and dump wash trade beer. I, I know eventually I'm going to go down. <laughs> Actually,
0: <definitely>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a matter of time. Yeah. They about the g-wagon trade you made uh with the 100k or whatever bump you got after purchasing so they're, they're like,
1: well once they saw that the seats hug you as you turn this is a this is a new feature that nikita showed me in the g-wagon this week when you make a turn on them the seats hug you is that right
2: yeah yeah and what i usually tell if a girl's riding in the car is it's like having a boyfriend <laughs> nikita
0: beer so alone he has his car hug him yeah that's uh <laughs> that's <interesting. laughs>
1: Logan's Logan's a little sharp this week. Some zingers.
0: <laughs> I uh, lack of sleep, flying back on that eye. <sighs> yeah, uh, you guys are all collateral damage for me at this point. So, so another thing this week um, that that was I, I found interesting was um, Homebrew, uh, which is Hunter Walk and uh, Satya Patel's fund. Uh, a nine-year-old San Francisco-based seed firm um, has announced that they're making their last new investments out of their third fund. And that the fund going forward will operate as a uh, as an evergreen entity, um, backed only by Hunter Walk and, and uh, Satya's money. So, I Zach, do you have any any thoughts specifically about this structure? I think some of us know the homebrew guys, and so I actually don't have any inside baseball on on the decisioning. This is all sort of outside-in speculation, um, but would love to hear your thoughts as well.
1: Yeah, I, I have nothing on uh, homebrew specifically, and and by the way, I'm a big fan of Hunter and Satya's both. So it very like it's, it makes a lot of sense for them. Keep the, I, keep the deal flow coming, guys. That's what I. Yeah, please. Yeah, well, Hunter and Satya, we're we're big fans. Uh, what I will say is, like, I think it does make sense. I mean, just look at the market for a second. There's a there's a swath of GPS who have done phenomenally well in the last ten years, right? And some portion of those are going to retire and say, hey, you know, no more. And, and we've saw that happen uh, this summer, a bunch of those folks, right? And some swath, I actually think an increasing swath are going to do what Hunter and Safia have done, right? And say, hey, we've done well, uh, this entire you know, macro tech market's done quite well for us. Why wouldn't we now go and transition to only managing our own money uh, and avoid the stress and the hassle of, of all the things that are involved when you take money from others? right? I, I actually think it makes a lot of sense. And by the way, you see it all the time in every other financial vertical, why not in venture?
0: Yeah, that's what I think is actually. I mean, the, you know, point seventy-two and Steve Cohen was actually kicked out of trading other people's money for a long time. Uh, in uh, the,
1: a different, a different I, outcome, certainly.
0: in the in the hedge fund industry, like the, people have made so much money and have moved more and more to being family office structures, right? And uh, yeah, whether or not it was illegal or not, uh, the reasons that they that they were forced into doing that. Um, so I think it is interesting. I mean, it's a lot easier to make you can write smaller checks and you're not dividing the money you get back by uh it's not 20 or 25 or 30 percent or whatever in the carried income that you get back like all of it's yours and so you can be a fifth the size a fourth the size a third the size and actually be able to generate more money for yourself and i think it actually aligns interests with founders as well if you're going to say small right like It aligns interest for Satya and Hunter to be able to stay small and still generate returns. And also it aligns interest from the founders that they're able to uh, they're able to still get their involvement without needing to be force fed huge chunks of capital.
2: I I mean, as as an investor, I probably want to follow on on all their deals because now it's their own money at stake. Uh, A hundred percent. We all have to put our own money at stake. But yes, a hundred percent (laughs) of their own money, to be clear. (laughs) Yeah, clear. (laughs) I mean, all my like everyone, everyone I know is has their own rolling fund, and they constantly send me deals, and I'm like, uh, how how much of this is your own money? Like, because I I don't have my own fund, I'm just putting in my own checks, and they're like, well, all my deals are marked up
1: five x. I'm like, what what does that even mean? Uh, So, so. well, syndicates and rolling funds are like the least amount of your own money, right? Like, that's like the least levered relative, or sorry, the most levered, sorry, relative to like the logans of the world who have to put it a, a, yeah, i don't know what logan's gp commit is but yeah, yeah, yeah. sizable <laughs> yeah
0: yeah My what's yeah my debt is bigger than my uh my assets versus liability math uh is not great uh, i i do think that's it's an interesting point do you structurally do you know what these rolling funds do you have to put up one percent i assume legally
2: you have to put up that's the i think that's the legal bare minimum that you have to put up i i think so but um i i think that percentage drops very quickly once the checks start rolling in yeah the strangest thing about them is so i i'm in a couple and you put in your bank information on the angel list page and they just pull money from your account, like, on a quarterly basis without even you telling, without even telling you. Uh, and I, I eventually w- logged in. I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And I had to, like, turn them all
1: off because they were, like, just depleting my entire bank account. <laughs> what's easier to cancel, the New York Times subscription or a Rolling Fund subscription? Two very insidious things.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to, like. Uh, email uh, AngelList to get get it turned off, so it was kind of an ordeal.
0: Yeah, I bet you have to show up in person and like, yeah, you actually have to track down Naval and grab him and wrestle him to the ground <laughs> to be able to turn off Angel List. yeah.
1: That's so right, you have to personally fight each rolling fund lead to get your money back.
0: <laughs> I guess, uh, as our usual outro here, normally we do a tease of Nikita's revealing his app. We actually uh, just found out for the the joke, I guess, has been that we actually didn't think Nikita had an app. And so there was nothing to reveal. But it sounds like Nikita, we uh, you actually are building something
2: now. I am building an app. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so we don't even need to tease it. It's actually something real. Do we have a name yet? Uh, not yet. Uh, I, I don't know if it'll even launch, but uh, toiling away. Wow. I can't wait. Well, what I just heard is everyone
0: send name suggestions in Nikita's uh, inbox. Maybe just tweet at him uh, and give him
1: your best ideas. What I heard is if you just start wiring money to Nikita, he has to take it. That's how I interpreted that sentence. (laughs)